Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Occupational Therapy Professional Podcast with our guest, Dr. Christina Reyes-Smith. Thanks for listening. Dr. Christina Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Could you just tell us a little bit about your background in occupational therapy? Sure. I am very excited to be here with you. I appreciate the invitation. And I have been practicing since 2007. So almost 20 years it has flown by. It's been uh, an incredible journey. I've learned so much um, from being an entry-level clinician to uh, now associate professor at the Medical University of South Carolina, um, where I've been able to uh, develop and teach the leadership and management courses in our new occupational therapy doctorate program. I've also um, been very fortunate to have different leadership roles throughout our university, um, as well as uh, at our state association, and then through the AOTA over the past couple of years. the relationships have been incredible with colleagues such as yourself, as well as patients, students, and um, I am very excited to be here. I did own a private practice for about eight and a half years, which closed in 2020, sadly. Um, we were committed to providing access to quality care, particularly for underserved communities with language barriers, with uh, rural families and lower income families as well. But we saw um, everyone uh, across uh, across the spectrum of society um, through that journey. Well, I just think especially right now in the last few years, it probably has always been, but I think our awareness of, of issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion are so important for everyone. But, you know, we're going to talk today a lot about um, how that uh kind of influences our profession and and the professionals that we work with. Um, so, and I know, as as you said, as a practitioner and as a leader uh, and in your, your work at MUSC, you've been very involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So could you just talk a little bit about um, how you became interested in the topic or why it's been such a passion for you within the profession? Absolutely. So uh, I have grown up in Charleston, South Carolina, um, since the age of three years old. And so during my time here, um, I most of my interactions were cross-cultural in some way. Um, and I really grew up between different cultures um, and even racial and ethnic, uh, ethnically as well. Um, My mother uh, is lighter skinned, my father is darker skinned. uh, And so when um, their their social groups were very different uh, and uh, as a result of that, I'm very fortunate in that I have, uh, I'm able to connect with people um, from different backgrounds, uh, professionally and personally as an adult in in unique ways. It was a different um, skill set that I think was developed and and mindset um, being able to kind of uh, move through. And and really the Puerto Rican, cultural background is um, a a mixed race uh, with uh, 
Dutch and Spaniards and uh, Africans uh, coming through the island. You have the indigenous population there as well. So it really is kind of its own um, melting pot, for lack of a better, better word. Uh, and so for me personally, it, there was that... Um, that that background root. Uh, growing up, my mother had a bit of a language barrier, and so I would have to review the notes that she would send to school to my teachers because of uh, grammar and spelling. And so um, there have just been different circumstances throughout my lifetime uh, along those lines. And, and as an occupational therapy student, um, I remember looking for some kind of organization around Hispanic Latino uh, student needs or, or faculty or staff, and there were no resources that were accessible at my university. And so I helped start one, uh, the MESC Alliance for Hispanic Health, and um, that group continues to, to be strong today, almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud of that. And so... Uh, that's a little bit about some of my early interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion. As I entered into the profession, I continued to see a need for uh, transformational changes for our profession, for our workforce, for um, the resources that were available for the educational processes, um, for the structures within our professional associations and leadership uh, roles, uh, as well as what we recognize, um, who we recognize, um, what our the various aspects of our society that um, have been maybe marginalized uh, historically that we can recognize, value, and help to bring to the forefront to help us to move forward together. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education, and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Yeah, well, that's, um, I'm happy that you're in the profession and happy that you've been doing this important work. Um, could you talk, and, and obviously with culture is such an important part of, of all that we do as occupational therapists, not that it isn't for other people in healthcare and educational settings, but, you know, so much of occupation and is is rooted, obviously, in culture. Um, could you just kind of start by defining some some terms, so diversity, equity, inclusion, kind of what that means to you, and, and we'll have some resources um, at occupationaltherapy.com that'll help um, kind of extrapolate this as well, so. Absolutely. So um, diversity at its core is really just differences. Uh, differences within um, preferences, choices, <clears throat> Context, 
appearances. Um, I tell the students when we're having an interview day, people may <clears throat> people may talk differently, walk differently, or act a little differently, but we want to ensure that everyone feels that they belong, that they have a place here. Uh, and that's where the inclusion piece comes in. Um, when uh, uh, individuals or groups or populations are are left on the outside or in the margins, um, that is that exclusion piece, which is the opposite of inclusion, which is what we're seeking to move forward in our profession and in healthcare at large. Mm -hmm. sure. um, occupational therapy is one of the many health professions that have been really sounding the alarm in this area that we need to do better to serve our populations, but also to serve our workforce, our students, um, and our, our future workforce and, and uh, consumers of our services as well. And it it is dire in that our society is growing more diverse racially and ethnically. Uh, we also look at other aspects of diversity as well. Um, religious minorities, for example, sexual and gender minorities, uh, the disability, uh, individuals with disabilities, um, just to name a few. Uh, and so inclusion is about uh, in incorporating everyone and creating a space for that. Non-discrimination is another term that uh, is used to help describe when we're not excluding people, we're not discriminating against them in some way. Uh, and equity is where everyone has access to the same opportunities and outcomes at the end of the day. Um, and these are terms that are utilized by the World Health Organization and other national healthcare and international healthcare and organizations. Um, and so I want to address uh, a little bit that sometimes um, people have concerns about reverse discrimination or about that anti-racism means anti-dominant groups in some way. Um, and really at its core inclusion and these concepts do not uh, promote excluding anyone or discriminating against anyone. And so um, it is important that we, we consider that uh, as we provide initiatives, strategies, and resources as well. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about sort of the difference between inclusion and tolerance and, um, you know, what, what that might mean, you know, within the profession uh, or when we're working with, uh, you know, some of the clients that we're working with or with our, our coworkers? Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about educational theory for a sure, second. Sure. Um, so Bloom's taxonomy is discussed frequently. We talk about knowledge, we talk about skills, and then we talk about attitudes and values. And this really falls under the attitudes and values for our students and our practitioners in terms of our attitudes towards others. Tolerance is maybe acceptance, but there is that that concept of um, there's a little bit of hostility, a little abrasiveness potentially with it um, versus inclusion. There is a value. There is there are positive uh, connotations to it. Um, 
there's a respect as well that really underlies this concept of inclusion um, that is not always present when we talk about tolerance. Uh, and, and I remember as a student, there was a Martin Luther King Jr. event where I was invited to um, provide some remarks. And uh, this was 2000. Five and I remember the, the one of the key speakers talking about tolerance and when I spoke I added in that that we will also bring appreciation wonder value to individuals that are not like ourselves um, and we could get into all kinds of philosophical discussions uh, but we won't do that here. <laughs> But I think there is just something about it, like curiosity around, you know, valuing cultures that are not your own, you know, and, and how do we, how are we able to learn from each other is, is just so important in this journey that, that we're certainly all on. Um, so I'll have a couple more words for you to, um, sure. to talk about it. Jedi um, is something that we hear out there every now and again. Right. So JEDI is a term uh, which stands for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And interestingly enough, some people from underrepresented groups reject the acronym JEDI um, for, for whatever reasons it may be. Um, but I'll, I'll also add that multiple other terms have been included in the lexicon uh, of this of this uh, of diversity and so um, a for accessibility has been included b for belonging as well and so you'll see things like um, day job uh, or deja uh, and so there are a lot of different variations it's interesting because the pandemic seemed to catalyze this era of hyper change for us with regard to technology, uh, but also with um, racial and ethnic uh, circumstances in our society. And so we saw this huge uh, explosion of um, literature being published, resources being generated, um, uh, at theoretical frameworks and um, and context being um, being disseminated, and so uh, I know we'll talk about some of the current socio political aspects here shortly. But um, it it is an area that is rapidly changing, and so it's important to continue to uh, educate ourselves and learn all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we talk about some of those things? Um, I know, you know, as you said, during COVID, um, you know, it was very uh, stressful for everyone, but I think especially for people, um, you know, from the, the African-American community in the United States um, around George Floyd and just that uh, the summer of, you know, kind of um, all of our discontent, it seems like, um, but you were on the AOTA board of directors at that time, and you're certainly not speaking for them now, but um, could you just talk a little bit about what that was like and what were you hearing from members? Sure. So I was elected in uh, January 2020 to the board of directors for the AOTA. Did not know that it was going to be as exciting a time as it was going to be. Yeah. And... Uh, 
So June, that was my first board meeting. It was a, a preview meeting for me, essentially. Um, and uh, just the the pain um, that people in my in my immediate, my local, and and then at the national levels were experiencing uh, was just unbelievable. Um, uh, so. The other key part of um, the pandemic at that time was that it it really brought to light these health disparities that people had been trying to call attention to for really several decades at that point. Back in 2002, the Institute of Medicine uh, published their groundbreaking report on racial and ethnic disparities in the healthcare system. And so to see it in hyper time playing out with lives that were lost disproportionately uh, within racial and ethnic minority groups was, um, was unprecedented. Uh, and so the lived experiences of those who lost so many. Um, I had a student that lost four, four people in one year um, during 2020. And, uh, and under, understanding that generationally often you had multiple generations living under one roof in, in some cultures and in some homes within the United States. Uh, there, there was so much pain and suffering, and then you add on top of that the economic uh, repercussions that um, disproportionately affected people in um, the hospitality and tourism industries, uh, um, uh, and and in other industries as well that people were experiencing at that time, and so um, it just became this. Uh, trifecta in a sense for people um, with uh, the killing of George Floyd. And so, um, which again was not an isolated incident. There were concerns about police brutality for years. I remember as a child hearing about Rodney King in Los Angeles. And um, so uh, again, it, it wasn't just one incident. It really um, bubbled to the surface some of the, the challenges that for, had been ongoing for decades. So as a board member, um, I was the first uh, person of color, racial and ethnic minority to be on the board of directors in several decades at that point. Wow. Um, and so it, everything was on Zoom also unexpectedly. Typically, we have face-to-face -face meetings in Bethesda, Maryland at the headquarters, but um, it was uh, it was a very difficult, difficult time. Um, the board members who I have been able to get to know very well since that time, I know were committed to helping us to move forward in these areas, but uh, there, there were not a lot of strategies that were evident. evident. And it, it's been this process of evolution. We had a national conference called Occupational Therapy Evolving um, Diversity, Equity, and Justice uh, back in, I believe it was 2021. And so 
we really are. It's this era of hyper change. People are trying to do their best. They're trying to navigate. They're hosting listening sessions. They're creating resources. Um, they're advocating. And at times, we mess up. Uh, we don't always get it right as individuals, as groups, as organizations. Um, but it's important that we we learn from that. We do better in the future. We continue to listen, especially before we speak. And that, for me, has been something I've been focusing on more these last couple of years. And uh, ultimately, it's through the dialogue. Um, calming down is important for that. We have, there's this great book called Crucial Conversations, um, which I have utilized throughout this journey uh, with diversity and, and culture. Um, and so it talks about very important topics, which are very emotionally charged, potentially, and that we can calm down as a strategy for dialogue and discussion and progress to get to where we want to be. <laughs> because if we're not talking, we're not going to get anywhere. And if we're yelling, then there's defensiveness, there's that the threatening aspect and that's not constructive either so that's been uh those have been some of the um lessons that that i've learned along the way yeah i i um i really appreciated um a lot of the the listening sessions and i appreciated that that was sort of what the board started at least in my uh outsider view um looking in uh they started by by listening and so as a as a white male um i always uh that's where i especially now am trying to really start with because my you know my first reaction often is to to solve problems and you know we <laughs> I'm not the one to identify the problem, you know, um, I, I need to listen to, to help figure out. And that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing as occupational therapists to begin with, right. Is to, you know, it's not our goals. It's uh, the, the goals of the, of the individuals that we're, we're trying to support. Um, but I, I really appreciated the listening sessions and it helped, um, for me and some of my learning. Uh, and so, uh, to really listen, uh, to fellow occupational therapy practitioners that um, I'm I'm older. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that old yet, but I'm I'm starting to feel like I'm I'm starting to to get on that uh, on that older side of things. And and I remember um, when I was in school, we really talked about you know cultural competency uh, and talked about really how it was important uh, to be competent in cultures and. Um, and that we would, uh, but really it was about supporting clients that we were working with and really without any thought that maybe the, you know, our, the fellow students, our fellow practitioners, um, you know, came from underrepresented groups as well. Um, and so that was really, um, just important for me, I think, to, to hear about, you know, students and practitioners and academics, um, that had, had negative experiences from, other occupational therapy practitioners. Um, so I don't know what the listening experiences were like for you and for the board, and has that really helped to influence some of the the decisions that you made following, um, you know, that that summer of 2020. Yeah, absolutely. So the listening sessions were very important for one for providing space for people to share mm -hmm. about uh, in in some situations, things that had happened 
a long time before. And in some, there were there are daily occurrences that people are interacting with uh, in, in some way. And so for the board of directors, the listening sessions were really one part of essentially a needs assessment for our profession. We had an ad hoc DEI committee uh, during that time that had already been started in February 2020, before the pandemic, before George Floyd, uh, everyone, uh, that initiative was started under President Wendy Hildenbrand and was moving forward. And so that group was tasked with assessing the needs at that time. And so there were surveys that went out. There were interviews with different stakeholders. Um, the listening sessions became a part of that to help develop a strategic framework around diversity, equity, and inclusion at that time. And so now that group had recommended a permanent DEI committee for the AOTA. That was a part of the bylaws, it, it was going to be a part of having that person be the chair, be a uh, member of the board of directors. And so the board has moved forward with that. We have the DEI committee. They've been working um, incredibly hard these last couple of years. Uh, we also have the chair of the DEI committee who has been serving with the board of directors with voice and not vote currently. Um, and hopefully that will be changing at some point. Um, so the, uh, the initiatives were there and starting. Um, the listening sessions, uh, especially having board members there were helpful for increasing understanding, assessing the needs, um, and being able to conceptualize some initiatives that would have uh, real concrete um, solutions and, and strategies for our, our profession. Uh, and the needs are multifaceted. Um, we have educational needs, we have uh, clinical practitioner needs, we have language access needs, we have advocacy and uh, socio-political needs. Um, and so from that strategic framework, uh, we've had incredible momentum in multiple areas uh, through the AOTA since that time. I think communication of all those initiatives sometimes is a challenge because the emails will go out or it may be posted somewhere on a website. And sometimes there's so much information that um, members may not be getting all of the information. Um, and especially for non-members, it may be even more challenging. But there have been YouTube videos, podcasts, uh, journals through AJOT, OT practice articles, um, uh, societal statements that, that we have that have been updated. Um, we have ethics advisory opinions as well that are available and are being revised right now for the next um, iteration of the Code of Ethics. And the uh, challenge that you mentioned as far as um, for a long time, the focus was on the patient-provider interaction, and we weren't really talking about the workforce. That's an area that we were able to bring to the Ethics Commission um, through the Representative Assembly, actually, through a motion to expand the cultural uh, 
what then was cultural competence and sensitivity to expand it to uh, the workforce inclusion as well. So, and now we have three different ethics advisories that are going to be related to culture and diversity in some way. Which is so important. And I think, um, you know, just hopefully makes all of us better, makes the profession better um, as we're, you know, it's kind of that here comes everybody sort of uh, mentality that we're, we should all be in this together. And how do we, how do we best support um, others that are within the, the profession? And then there were some specific um, DEI initiatives that, that you mentioned that the board helped to fund. Um, do you want to talk about the, the toolkit and how that came into being and maybe what, what some of the, the items on the toolkit are? And I believe the toolkit is free and is open to members and non-members alike, right? Sure. So the modules are great resources that are available uh, for students, practitioners, educators, uh, and, and it's growing. There's information being added from time to time. Uh, there are resources around um, case studies. There are videos available. There are links to official documents related to diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, there is a glossary of terms available um, and many articles uh, that have been um, linked through the DEI toolkit as well. Um, there may be some that uh, are available behind the firewall to members only, but for the most part, um, the resources are available to the general public. And was that something the board was really intentional about to have a lot of resources available, not just to, we want members, obviously it's a, a member driven organization. I, I know uh, I had a, a friend that was the president of the Ohio OT Association at one point went and testified before the Ohio House or Senate and said that, you know, she rep represented the 10,000 occupational therapy practitioners in the state of Ohio. and. The, uh, you know, the, the member of the House or Senate said, well, how many members are in your committee and are in your organization that was like, you know, 2,500 or whatever it was. And so they said, no, you're, you're representing 2,500, not 10,000. So, but anyway, um, was that important to have those, uh, those resources available to, to everybody? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the for the profession to have the kind of transformational change that um, you know, we can go back to the centennial vision of um, having a, a profession that is powerful, widely recognized, evidence-based, uh, with a diverse and globally connected workforce meeting society's occupational needs. Society's occupational needs really uh, will need to be addressed by our entire profession, um, including our students, our clinicians, our faculty, our researchers, our inventors, uh, our entrepreneurs. All of, all of us are a part of meeting society's occupational needs. And with Vision 2025, that really helped to focus even more so on providing um, and enabling uh, occupation for all. And so, uh, it is important that these kinds of resources be accessible and available um, 
to our profession at large. And often we don't think about those that are entering into the profession. I'm an admissions director currently, and so this is something I think about frequently. Uh, those prospective students don't have access to membership resources, um, but they do have access to our website. And so this is a part of the um, the the perception that we're building for them even entering into the profession at large yeah and you you mentioned vision 2025 so i'm i'm going to read it verbatim i know uh you probably haven't memorized but just in case and you actually probably do but um i don't but i i know where it is so i can always go to it when i need to but vision 2025 as an inclusive profession occupational therapy maximizes health well-being and quality of life for all people populations and communities through effective solutions that facilitate participation in everyday living and you know, I think the inclusive piece is really important, and we're an inclusive profession. And as I said, I think that's uh, different, or, or there's more of an emphasis on the profession, not just on on the people that we're we're working with us. But how do you see us doing currently with being inclusive as a profession, and um, how can we maybe get better at that? That's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's a great question. And so um, for those of us who have been in the profession for a little while, we may remember that the as an inclusive profession was added later right. after the first iteration of the vision yep. statement back in around 2017. And so that piece of it, uh, it is so critical and it's something that as a society, we've been learning more and more over the years that in order to meet the needs of our diverse society, we must have a diverse profession and workforce that is helping to meet those needs uh, in terms of having representation of individuals, of having um, the ideas, the strategies. Um, we've learned from uh, the research that diverse teams uh, can outperform uh, teams that do not have that diversity because of the, the um, uh, homogeneity of ideas, of values, of beliefs that may not think outside of the traditional box in the same ways. Uh, and so diversity, equity, inclusion, it's evidence-based. Um, we have research that shows us that health outcomes uh, are, are better, that uh, access is better. Um, that uh, trust and rapport, uh, safety, all of these different factors um, are better when, when there is diversity present within the workforce. And so when it comes to things like holistic admissions and um, mandatory trainings, unfortunately the mandatory can be this double-edged sword because people reject it. Um, but often the people that reject the mandatory trainings are the ones that need it the most. Uh, and so it, it's, it's this process um, and not any one of us is a quote unquote expert in all things DEI. Um, we are all on a journey of learning, of growing. Um, this this thing we refer to as cultural humility 
is really critical. Um, and I think I, I tend to try to think in opposites whenever I'm trying to understand a construct. And so the opposite of humility is supremacy. Uh, and so this concept of uh, cultural humility is understanding, it's uh, seeking to understand and appreciate uh, in, in a positive way where others are coming from. What are their needs? What are their desires? Um, what are the barriers and challenges? What are the supports and strategies that they have into, in place? Uh, and when we speak about one person, we're speaking about one person and they may have many different identities that uh, contribute to how they see themselves or, or the culture uh, which they belong to. Um, and so it's important to ask, ask how people want to be identified. We talk about preferred pronouns for sexual and gender minorities. It's important to ask how they want to be identified with, <clears throat> with their pronouns. When we talk about disability status, it's important to ask, do they prefer person first terminology or uh, condition first terminology and sometimes it's generational we talk about um latino uh communities there's so much diversity just within hispanic latino communities and now you have latin x which um some of the older generations do not endorse um right. you have some that are saying uh, latine uh with an e at the end because um there's no gender associated with it uh as in latino or latina so um, again, these, these terms are evolving. They can vary from region to region. They can vary generationally. And so listening, learning, um, and especially I think with cultural competence, there has been this um, pushback that you can't be competent about all things culture. So we've been in this exploration of, of terminology. Culturally relevant care is now a term that's being used. Um, culturally appropriate care. The uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services published the national class standards back in the early 2000s and then revised them in 2013, where class stands for culturally and linguistically appropriate services. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, standards, culturally and linguistically appropriate standards. And so um, there is a lot of terminology. Uh, some have written about uh, transcultural competence. I believe that was a group with uh, Dr. Michael Lawama. Um, and so uh, learning, becoming more educated, um, but also looking at the AOTA core documents, our code of ethics talks about justice, autonomy, fidelity, veracity. Uh, and so looking at our core values uh, as well, um, we talk about uh, those different aspects. It's useful to go back to Ted Lasso, you know, and he has that line about, so um, you know, he tries to be, you know, curious, not judgmental. And I think that there's a, an aspect of, of culture, you know, cultural humility, competence. Um, you know, really it is that we're all on a journey and we're all learning. And so the, you know, one of the best ways to learn is to, is to listen, you know, and to, to really figure out what is, that should be our job as an occupational therapy practitioner, what is important to the person that we're 
treating that we're working with. Um, you know, that that's just such an important aspect of, of our profession. And so, you know, certainly race and ethnicity and everything else that makes a person a person, you know, speaks to that. Absolutely. And I, for our profession, our OT practice framework talks about culture or cultural about 45 times, <laughs> 45 times culture impacts our context, our roles, our habits, our routines, our preferences, our values, our beliefs, the way we dress, the people we interact with, the work we do, our education, our access to education, our health literacy, so many different aspects of who we are as occupational beings. We should be leading the health professions in these areas of culture and diversity. When we talk about social determinants of health, that where you live, what kind of activities you're engaged with, do you have access to healthy food, transportation, uh, you, what is your language? All these different aspects impact our occupation, our performance, our participation, the skills that we have. Um, but if you look at the literature with social determinants of health and occupational therapy, there is very little out there right now. So we need more researchers to help establish the evidence within our profession, but there are a myriad of resources available across other health professions that we can utilize um, to ultimately better serve our communities and our clients. Yeah. Well, and, and in terms of that inclusion in our own profession, if we look at um, the last uh, salary survey that was done by AOTA, um, uh, it shows the work that we have to do. So if we look at um, about 91% of practitioners are female, 84% are white. There's a huge underrepresentation of African-Americans, 13.6% um, of the general population, about 3% of OT practitioners, um, Hispanic population, 19% of the population, and about 3.6% of, um, of uh, OT practitioners, about 0.3% of us are Native uh, American or Indigenous practitioners, and about 6% are, are Asian uh practitioners, which is actually closer to, to where, where we're at as a, as a society in the U.S. Um, and there's been a little bit of an uptick among students, just as you said, we're becoming a, a more diverse culture, especially uh, those of us that are younger than me, um, are, are, you know, there's much more diversity among our, our younger generations. Um, but if we look at inclusion uh, and, you know, needing to have a, a workforce that, you know, looks like the people that we're, we're working with, um, how do we change that number? And especially in light of the U.S. Supreme Court recent decision about not um, really using race-based admission policies to be able to admit students. So that's a, that's a big question. So how do, we, how do we get better at that, Christina? That's a great question. So we know that the pandemic has increased some of the disparities in education as well. And so we're hopeful that those are going to um, eventually settle out a little bit, but there was an upward trajectory prior to the pandemic that has been a little slow, particularly for individuals from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, and other disadvantaged groups. So 
the holistic admissions have been endorsed by the American Association of Medical Colleges, the AAMC, for almost 20 years now. And so they looked at some of the resources from the Institute of Medicine, the national class standards that I mentioned earlier, um, and, and even calls from the World Health Organization, for example, uh, to look at um, social determinants of health, health equity, some of those different aspects uh, through uh, a, a workforce that is representative of the communities. And that is one of the standards from the national class standards as well. Um, I highly encourage um, anyone who is not familiar with those standards to go uh, take a look. And so there are strategies that we can utilize which are evidence-based to uh, help to attract and retain students from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, um, underrepresented backgrounds. And so the Supreme Court ruling, we'll go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Um, so it is still, we're still understanding um, the repercussions and implications implications. We're still understanding the repercussions and implications of the Supreme Court ruling, uh, but it looks like for now race is not able to be considered a factor. Previously, it was able to be considered a factor when it was a part of a variety of other factors as well. And so there are other factors that we can look at related to socioeconomic status, uh, language, country of origin, geographic region, rural communities, um, some of these other factors, first generation college student uh, going to a, a school where SAT scores were lower than the, the state or national averages, for example. Mm -hmm. And with uh, OTCAS, which is the Occupational Therapy Centralized Application Service System, uh, we have access to what are called HRSA indicators through the Health Resources Service Administration, which is a federal entity. And there are about 15 to 20 questions, I wanna say, that are related to uh, environmental and social socioeconomic disadvantage. So those are some criteria that the applicants are able to share. There are other factors that we can look at as well. Um, we can ask questions about what is the diversity that uh, they would bring to the program. And so that looks at other aspects and other dimensions of diversity. Um, it allows the applicant to self-identify um, if they wish to. There may be some things that they wouldn't disclose because of fear of um, adverse repercussions, um, but providing those opportunities uh, is important for us. We also, when we look at the applicant pool, we historically have allowed the applicants to come to us. And so I, I have a saying that if they haven't heard about occupational therapy, they will not choose occupational therapy 100% of the time. And this we know, there are not a lot of things that we do know, but that is one that, um, that we can count on. And so getting the word out, and now we have social media at our disposal, disposal 
we can conduct events. Um, we have the online presence that we can utilize through webinars uh, and outreach, but we, and not just those of us in academia, but across the profession, those of us that love this great profession have a responsibility to help spread the word about the wonders of this profession. Unfortunately, there is a lot of negativity out there that's being posted on social media right now. And uh, I, my students tell me about it. I hear about it from other practitioners. Those of us who have had, which I believe are the majority, who have had those positive experiences, even though we all have ups and downs from time to time. Sure. And sometimes we need to make shifts in our um, job positions and uh, the pandemic sure, certainly um, put put some rinks in, uh, wrinkles into our, uh, our positions and careers. Um, but we need to share about our love, our passion, the impact that we have um, with our clients and with our colleagues as well. Uh, and now more than ever before, and really the vitality of the profession depends on it. The AOTA and our professional associations have a responsibility to be engaged in promoting the profession. But at the end of the day, each of us within our different spheres of influence can help be a part of growing and sustaining this profession that we love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it is so important that we have this diverse workforce and anything, all of us, you know, we're all responsible for it, right? To try to encourage people in our spheres or out and outside of our spheres to to consider the profession. And I think once they're in it, you know, um, how do we encourage uh, people from underrepresented groups to, you know, to move into faculty positions and to move into, you know, board of director positions. And I know, um, I think a, a, a sad part of, of our profession um, is, uh, so Dr. Leela Lawrence uh, was the last Slagle lecturer who was African-American and she uh, gave her Slagle lecture in 1969. And so the Slagle is, um, you know, kind of the, the penultimate, you know, kind of, um, award that our profession recognizes, you know, kind of scholarship. How do, how do we encourage more diversity within, you know, academia, within leadership of our profession? Any ideas on, on how we can do that? Absolutely. So having programming that reflects that we value diversity, equity, and inclusion is really key. And that's something that can happen across all levels. It can happen in a clinical setting, in academic programs, in research, whether it's uh, workshops, trainings, um, scholarship, funding, uh, sponsorships, all these different areas, we can have programs that we offer that help to say and, and demonstrate we value diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, accessibility, belonging, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, getting the word out and communicating it is really important too. Sometimes we're not great about communicating what we're doing and letting people know. So ensuring that we have systems and structures in place for that is really key. Um, getting feedback from our, uh, whether it's our key stakeholders, our partners, our 
constituents, and that can be through surveys, through focus groups, through listening sessions, um, through interviews as well. Uh, we can immerse ourselves in cultures um, within our local communities or other communities uh, to learn more about ourselves as cultural beings as we learn about others, uh, to especially those that are in the communities where we're serving. For example, at our university, um, for the last few decades, about 25% of the um, infants being born in our hospital were from Hispanic Latino descent, the vast majority being Spanish speaking. Uh, and so for our practitioners here in our local community, it benefits them to learn more about the families they are working with. I've had some students um, with, with capstone projects. Uh, one was working with interpreters in the NICU. She created a mobile app to help facilitate the continuum of care. She provided it right. in English and Spanish. Uh, and so now I have another student that's gonna be helping to promote that um, a little bit more within the community. Um, so through different initiatives, letting people know what we're doing, whether it's through our website, through our social media, um, can help to not, not just talk the talk, but to show that we are walking the walk, uh, that this is an area that is important to us. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about your, your role in COTAD and, and what COTAD is and how it came to being? It was kind of, you know, you said as a, as a student, you were looking for a, a group that had other people that, you know, maybe looked like you and had some of the, you know, so anyway, I'll stop talking. You can talk about COTAD a bit. Yeah, sure. Some of the values and interests um, at, at that time. And yeah, with the, uh, as an aside, the MESC Alliance for Hispanic Health, it ended up being students, faculty, and staff from a wide variety of backgrounds who were just very passionate about helping to meet the healthcare needs of the Hispanic Latino community here. Uh, so with COTAD, the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity, um, I would say it was similar. We were uh, at an event. We had all come through the Emerging Leaders Program of the AOTA through different um, generations of it at that point. And we were at a leadership event at the conference sitting around a table. And there was the proverbial cocktail napkin where we started jotting down some ideas um, with regard to the Centennial Vision in particular. And the diverse workforce of the Centennial Vision was an area that we all felt very strongly and passionately about. But we felt that we were not seeing a lot of initiatives at that time. And we were from different cultural backgrounds, different um, racial and ethnic, religious, uh, geographic, socioeconomic backgrounds sitting around the table. And we thought that we could uh, help to move our profession forward at that time through a presentation. And so we, uh, were able to get um, sponsorship for a session on um, diversity in the workforce perspectives from emerging leaders. And so uh, that later was an OTA practice article as well. Um, but we discovered during that year that we loved working together. Um, it was through online mediums like this and then with face-to-face -face at conference. And so that next year was when uh, COTAD was born. Um, 
I was very grateful. Dr. Catherine Hoyt uh, took on the role of the founding chair at that time. Uh, my daughter was being born uh, <laughs> one year later, excuse me, one month later. <laughs> so um, you had things to do. I did. I was a little <laughs> busy at the time, um, but she was just an exceptional leader and helped to grow over her seven year tenure as the founding chair, uh, the group to a national 501c3 organization, which offers a mentorship program. It offers student chapters, which have grown like wildfire mm -hmm. in over, I believe over a hundred uh, academic programs across the country right now. Um, there have been multiple articles, presentations, workshops, pre-conference workshops, um, panels, annual events. There's an annual breakfast where we just celebrated the 10-year um, anniversary this past uh, April, March uh, at conference. Uh, there are uh, Coted Ed uh, connects educators through the Education Summit and um, at the national conference and through resources, Facebook pages. Um, the social media presence has been very strong as well. And um, there have been uh, some connections to advocacy initiatives. Um, the uh, AOTA uh, has been supporting the Workforce Diversity Act, for example, and we've had different individuals um, provide input uh, for that. And so uh, it's just been amazing to see over these past 10 years how it has grown and um, evolved. When I think COTED is just such, it's something we can do to learn and to, to take action. Um, and I know AOTA uh, Lands was a, a longtime AOTA employee. If you were at the, the conference, you probably met Lands was just, uh, and he sadly passed away here recently. And so AOTF started um, a scholarship in his honor that uh, specifically is for um, diverse uh, occupational therapy uh, students. So if you want to uh, take a, an action, um, you know, go, join COTAD and maybe go to the, the foundation website and, and make a, a donation to that fund. Um, because I, as you said, it's it's our profession and, you know, it's our responsibility to, to hand it on, you know, to the next generation. You have, you have a, a lot more time in the profession than I do, but um, to the next generation of, of practitioners, because um, as you said, you know, culture is such a, an important context of all of the work that we do. So um, I just wanted to thank you for your time uh, and for just your, your really life's work, you know, as a practitioner, as a faculty member, and uh, as a member of the, of the board of directors to really help us move forward as a profession, um, you know, so that we do have an inclusive uh, profession and we're meeting the diverse needs of of the individuals that we're working with. So I don't know if you have any uh, final words for us uh, before we uh, head out. So I want to encourage everyone to continue to be involved, be engaged with your membership at your state level with AOTA. Your membership and engagement matters for helping to impact our profession, our societies, and our workforce. So as you have your membership, whether it's to COTAD or there are a couple other groups that are out there currently as well, it really shouldn't be an either or. Uh, and with our state and, and national memberships, it shouldn't be an, an either or. Um, each of these different groups has different functions that are advocating on your behalf as a student, as a practitioner, 
even as a constituent, because one day you may be receiving occupational therapy services as well. And so it's very important uh, that we are all engaged and involved in helping to move the the profession forward together, um, because that's the only way that we're going to continue to um, be able to grow and uh, sustain this great profession that we love. Awesome. Well, Dr. Christina Smith from the Medical University of South Carolina, thank you so much for your time. And I hope you and everybody else has a great day. Thank you. You do the same. Thanks for having me.